standing in front of a few hundred people sure. with a few angry skeptics going, well, what about discipline? And it's like, well, what do you think discipline actually means? Do right. you think that it's coming out with your own dysregulation of anger and barking out a consequence? You know, like this punishment is really going to sure. <laughs> turn your child into a kind human being by the time they leave your home? No. What does it mean? It means to teach and support and soothe and, and, and see your child for who they really are. Hi, parents. Welcome back to Parenting on Purpose. Today, we have a guest all the way from British Columbia. We have Miss Dr. Allison with us. She is a parent and relationship expert coming to us with several decades of expertise in the field of parenting and temperament. So we have quite a treat for you today. Dr. Allison, hello. So glad to I'm so happy that you have crossed space and time to spend time with us today. We're looking forward to uh, leveraging your years of experience and what a, a very exciting career you've had. It's been, been quite a journey. Well, actually, you know, I often think, wow, how did I end up doing this for a living? And I, I do really have to credit my colleague, Dr. Allison Miller, because she just kind of picked me out of a crowd and said, here, go give some lectures. And before I knew it, I had to quit my full-time job and do this. And then I was writing books and my private practice grew and TV and radio and all of that stuff. It just, I, I often feel like this found me. That's how it but sounds. having said that, like so many people that do this kind of thing for a living, they've always been interested in the human condition. Like, you know, even as a kid, I was curious about how people were behaving. So <laughs> we probably have a lot of material. <laughs> To work through. It. <laughs> awesome. years worth, <laughs> uh, just human. I, I'm in Florida, right? The people watching here is just out of this level. So uh, maybe I'm a, a budding psychologist as well. There's <laughs> a lot of material to look at. So you, you are two Dr. Allison's. Yeah, there's Dr. Allison Miller, and I'm Dr. Sorry. Allison Reese. And my maiden name used to be Mills. So it was Allison Mary Miller and Allison Mary Mills. It That's was true. just a little weird. <laughs> That, that's just too perfect, isn't it? That's amazing. I bet you guys had fun with the marketing of all of that. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And actually, you know, when it came to marketing, though, we have so much material that we found it really hard to market. And we didn't want to get schmoozy, you know, and sort of sell ourselves out. We kind of remained very organic and very committed to the community, if, if you know what I mean. That's awesome. Just a lot of local work. Yeah. That's kind of how we're growing as a podcast, um, just focusing on, on what we feel like parents need and talking to our parents and listening to all the feedback of the viewers. The cool thing about being, um, you know, at the beginning is we really like you. You were telling me before we recorded, you just really focus on being a part of the community and seeing where you can be of service and just showing up. And to your point, it kind of finds you, which is cool. It does. It does. Well, the thing that was so cool is we would offer these two eight week courses and we wouldn't even advertise word of mouth would send a hundred people into the eight week courses. And then because we believe that there's no quick fixes with parenting. And a lot of it is about doing your own personal growth work. We would say to people, look, once you've taken both the courses, you can come back free of charge for the rest of your life. Wow. And wow. so we'd end up with all these people that were graduates that actually helped the newer people to come on board. Because way back when I started, we were teaching things that people are talking about now. And I was really pushing a lot of buttons in terms of looking at the model of obedience and punishment and reward and how ineffective that can be. You know, I was talking about yes. the importance of listening and communication and self-regulation. And so these were all concepts that I was speaking in, in schools all over the place. Wow. And, and people were like, what? You know, and some of it was challenging because I'm a pretty sensitive person and I'm a bit of an introvert. So standing in front of a few hundred people sure. with a few angry skeptics going, well, what about discipline? And it's like, well, what do you think discipline actually means? Do right. you think that it's coming out with your own dysregulation of anger and barking out a consequence? You know, like this punishment is really going to sure. <laughs> turn your child into a kind human being by the time they leave your home. No. What does it mean? It means to teach and support and soothe and, and, and see your child for who they really are, like the true essence of each one of your kids. 
And that's why, you know, today, if we talk about temperament, the nine basic traits that we come into the world with, this has been really well researched. It started in 1956 with Dr. Stella Chess and Alexander Thomas. It was called the New York Longitudinal Study. And yeah. this okay. is such a game changer for people because I think most people, if they've got more than one child, they go, how could each one of my kids be so incredibly different for the right. same parents? And so it's the genetic blueprint, you know, like personality is formed by our genetic blueprint, just how we come into the world, plus our life experience. That's what forms personality, nature and nurture. And so when we can really understand our children's temperament on, an, on a trait-by-trait -trait basis, and they're all different, then we know what the challenges are. And so we can look at the antecedents, the triggers to challenges, and we can, focus, yeah, we can focus on the gifts of the trait. So I spend- So real quick clarifying question, and then we can get into the nine traits. So if I'm understanding correctly, there's gonna be nine basic um, tabs or traits within each person, and they'll show up differently based on what you just said, nature and nurture. And if I'm understanding correctly, this is applicable from you know zero to adulthood regardless of the age of your child, this can help you to better relate to them. Absolutely. What they found in the study, and they studied people for decades from the time they were infants, wow. is that, you know, the basic traits can remain the same throughout our lives, but our character can develop in a much more positive way if our parents understood and supported our unique temperament. Yeah. You know, so what it does is it gets rid of negative labels like stubborn and um, scatterbrained or, you know, those kinds of labels that aren't helpful. And instead we right. go, you know, who, who is my child? So, you know, oh, maybe, wow. yeah. <laughs> I can see in like a comparison culture, right? Like I know you're in BC and here in America, it's definitely like that. Like, you know, you, you it's almost like we've lost touch with ourselves. So our basis of what's normal is we look outward to see what we should be like instead of really just honoring our kids and ourselves. Yeah. Here is like where we are. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. Well, even in my couples course, Caitlin, Mad Love, um, people look at their temperaments and see how they play off as couples because you can have a very introverted awesome. type with a very extroverted type and, you know, and just how our personalities dance with each other. That's so awesome. parents need to understand their traits as well. Yeah. So is that, do you want to start there then? I know you have a few courses um, that span both relationships and also children's temperament, um, like health and wellness of the family unit. Um, but I think that's a great launching point. So maybe walk us through the nine traits yeah. and how we can better yeah. assess them in ourselves and our children to help leverage our relationships. Well, let's take a drive on through. I mean, I love um, this is all covered in, in our course, Sidestepping the Power Struggle. And I'll bring in a little bit about my own parenting experience Awesome. Now my kids are in their 30s, and I'm a grandmother, and I can see my daughter's temperament. I saw it right away, and I can work with that. So the first trait is activity level. And when I ask people to go through this presentation, it's usually about two hours long, I ask them to think of a number between 1 and 10, with 10 being high, 1 being low, and 5 in the middle. And, of course, I'm not going to be able to go through all of this in our time, but um, where, you know, people look at higher activity levels. It can just be a very busy child, a child who's hurt around their running shoes, a wiggler, a jiggler, just a real body mover. They can be very coordinated sometimes, very, you know, very athletic prone and that kind of thing. And if people say, yeah, you know, I've got a kid who's fairly high in activity level, I say, okay, great. What are the challenges? And where do they get negative attention? Is it you know, constantly reminding them to sit still? Is it expecting them to sit still while they eat or do their homework? You know, of course, things improve with age, but we want to look for the triggers that create challenges. And we're always asking people to hold up the positive. You know, wow. so my, my daughter was younger than my son uh, by two and a half years. She was highly active, energetic, needed a lot of outside structure beyond school and friends and extroverted. But it took me a long time to figure out my son. He was probably eight before I really realized, wait a minute, he's lower on activity level. He is exhausted by this busy family because he was about a three 
slower body movements, not that coordinated with hand-eye or fine motor skills, you know, fairly low in that skill category. And this was a kid who needed less activity, come home from school and chill. And still, mm -hmm. as a man of 35, <laughs> this is who he is. He schedules in downtime. So there, just right there is a simple trait, activity level. And I won't spend a ton of time on it, but you've got to work with it. Um, so two questions as we progress through these. One is, um, you obviously can work and change with these in yourself, but do you find that these are pretty steadfast? Like like you said, your son, if, if this is kind of how you are, this is always going to be like a baseline for how you are. Yeah, unless life okay. circumstances interfere, you know. But yeah, it is it is a baseline. Like I can look at my two kids in their 30s now and see just the traits right there. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, as you're going through, I'm thinking of it of my, my children, and they are so different. And and I'm I'm we're on number one, and I'm already like, oh, this is making so much sense. Um, as we go through this, does it make sense for our parents too to also like I'm I'm thinking of my kids, but I'm also thinking about my spouse. I'm thinking about myself because it's going to set the family dynamic, right? Yeah. Well, oh, that's awesome. The next trait, the next one is distractibility, and of course, we're not looking for ADHD or anything like that here. We're really looking at someone's distractibility, and if they're kind of in the middle, it's just a no thing. But if you start working your way up to someone who is more distractible, they are very perceptive. They notice things that other people miss. They may have more difficulty staying focused in a conversation if it doesn't interest them, which is interesting when it comes to marriage work, when you're not a distractible partner. And someone who's more distractible will often get lost in multitasking and go to do something and then just not do it and do something completely different. Which is fine when you're an adult because you have to rein in your focus if you're distractible. But when you're a kid and you don't have the awareness, it can be very frustrating for parents. So like, I'm about an eight. I'm pretty distractible. And my son is too. And the positive signs that go with this are I am very perceptive. When I'm you know, speaking to a group of people, I pick up on people's facial cues and emotions very quickly. And so do children. So they can be really tender hearted because they can take in a lot from their environment and the emotions around them. And the more stressed they are, the more distractible they become. And so, yeah, we've really got to be on the lookout for this. The positives just right away, they are highly creative, usually very funny. Again, um, we'll notice so many details of sometimes really unimportant things like your neighbor has a new license plate. It's like, dude, well, you know, why would you notice that? It's so cool, though. Yeah, it is. And that's what we've got to shine a light on is just how cool it actually is because there's a lot of challenges. Yeah. People misinterpret a distractible child as being disrespectful. They're not following through with instructions. I mean, most young kids can only handle a couple of instructions. And, and so we really have to see this for what it is. And, and, you know, humor works really well with distractible kids, talking in a funny voice, color coding their drawers, um, visual cues, visual aids, all these things so that we're working with this trait, holding up the positive and not letting that face that says, what were you thinking? Why aren't you ready yet? You know, like that's what we've got to watch because this is our kids wiring. Yes, yeah. wow. The, yeah, and so with every one of these traits, there are parenting pitfalls that we can fall into. And with this one, the negative parental habit is nagging. And nagging is doing your child's thinking for them. Nagging teaches children not to listen to your pleasant tone of voice. And when, I mean, we all nag when we're trying to get out of the house in the morning. That's one of the most stressful times of the day. So, you know, we use one word reminders, knapsack, shoes underwear, lunch. <laughs> um, oh my gosh, it's awesome. But we've got to be that we're not continuing the dance of nagging when our kids have a chance to think for themselves. You hit the nail on the head because we are so impatient in our own right, trying to get to work, trying to get the kids to school, making sure they have a chance to get breakfast on the way. And, and we think we're helping, but we are uh, robbing them of an opportunity to yes. do and be for themselves. Oh, that's, that's, that's big. Well, when we get into boundaries in the other course, we say, look, if this is a pervasive parenting style of nagging, it's actually a blind spot because we're crossing over. It's intrusive. So we've got to figure out, are, are we nagging? 
what's the impact? Our kids stop listening to our pleasant tone of voice and wait until we feel irritated or angry. And so now we're planting seeds for their future character where they will become chronic procrastinators and feel resentful of their adult partners anytime their partner asks them to do anything because they had this intrusiveness as kids. So, oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah. So, we've so it's like, um, it's like a role that they, um, the, it's like an enabler, or like a dysfunctional family role that because they were treated this way as a kid, now they're going to attract and be in a circumstance when they're an adult to repeat that pattern. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So, wow. I, you know, I realized we need to move quickly. The other end of the trade is that, you know, kids can be very, very focused. So distractible kids, um, get distracted by all kinds of things, you know, and they, but they can hyper-focus though on something that they're interested in. So that's what we have to work with. They can hyper-focus if they're engaged, whereas kids on the other end of the scale, when they're not distractible, they will hyper-focus on all kinds of things and they can have really good working memories and it can be very, very helpful when it comes to fields of study and, you know, that kind of thing. Wow. Yeah. I'm talking quickly, but shall we go on to I the know. Next? You're doing great. Yeah. I mean, it's, I guess it's, you said something like two things that I want to make sure people get. One is your kids will stop listening to your pleasant tone of voice, meaning they will wait for you to escalate before they tune in. That's not good. That's a red flag. So that's why we want to be mindful. And then you said shining a light on the positives of each of these attributes, because it's not about moving them to a certain point on the spectrum. It's about loving them and being aware of where they are. And just even in doing so, the kid is feels seen, right? And they they just feel more loved and present. This is so I'm I'm like loving this. We're not even on three yet. I love this. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> and there's so much more we can say, of course. But so the next trait is persistent. So you can be any of these traits. I'm also very persistent, whereas my son is not. He's more of a three, which is someone who is very easygoing and can give in easily. Um, you know, but my daughter is also very persistent. So you can just imagine what I'm going to talk about. Because two persistent people in a family can get locked into power struggles. And yes. um, persistence is a wonderful quality. Uh, I watched her go through a lot of medical trauma when she was in her third trimester of her pregnancy. And wow, her determination was just so admirable. It was so tough to parent at times. And she said to me one day, Mom, do you know what your problem is? She was like eight. I said, no, eight-year-old, tell me what my problem is. And she said, when you don't get your own way, you're really, like, grumpy. And I wanted to argue and say, no, I'm not. But this is when I realized, you know, the, the old saying, don't sweat the small stuff and choose your battles. When you've got a persistent child, you probably find you have more power struggles with this child. And because they grieve the loss of their idea. And their determination really wants them to move forward with what's important to them. So we always say, look, if you're going to give in, give in right away. Do not wait to give in because your child has beaten you down because you said no thing. And then you argue, argue, argue. And then you give in. What are you teaching? So say to people, choose, you know, choose your limits carefully and think about your limits ahead of time. What are you willing to die on the hill for? And, and what can you let go of? What can you say? No, it's a kid issue. I don't have to, I don't have to have a hard no here. Sometimes we say, give me a minute to think about it. So if you're going to give in, give in right away. If you have a no that needs to be there, there is a recipe that is really good to follow. Um, your child might say, Mom, can I go for a sleepover at Kate's house this weekend? And you get to say, actually, we've got company coming, and you need to be here this weekend. So unfortunately, not this weekend. Oh, that's really dumb. Why can't I? Now, if we want to go into a more immature position, we can just get into this power struggle with our child. Look, I told you, blah, blah, blah. Because blah. I said so, right. Yeah, and all that stuff. I'm the parent. Yeah. yeah. Instead, what we need to do is go into the reflective listening position, which is, hey, I get that you love staying at Kate's house and you're super disappointed right now. Yeah, this is really awful. And you can stay in that place and give them some empathy awesome. and then just hold back the, uh, the limit. And, and, you know, really sincerely say, I get how hard this is. 
But then you've got to learn how to end conversations, which can be very, very tricky. And it takes a commitment just to be able to say, now I think we need to just kind of let this one go for a bit. We can talk about it again later. But we don't want to get into the pattern of teaching our kids to be great debaters. And if we're debating over all kinds of things, they just get really good at arguing about all kinds of things, not realizing, wait a minute, this is what I call basket A. This is a really important no that we're giving here. And behind every limit is a family value. And so if you need to go there, you say it's so important to us that you're with us when Nana and Papa come. And we just value having us, having you in our home when we have visitors. You know, go to the values. So any rules that make sense, they're value driven. But I, too, being persistent, Caitlin, have got to watch my own kind of stubbornness. Right. Yeah. What goes through my head as we do this is a few things. Like, we have I, we have plenty of those in my family. I think I've been, like, an 11 on two of these uh, <laughs> 1 to 10 scales so far. Um, but it's like when you have multiple children and they are all in different areas, um, I, I can very quickly see how... One in one in one sense, it can feel overwhelming, but also how empowering this is to realize like it's just always going to be a bit of a, a bit of a mix, like a bit of a mixed bag, and just having empathy for where people are and having those conversations, right? And I have a three year old right now, so I think um, if I'm reading your material correctly, we do this where it's like Gabriel, this is a time where you get a chance, you get to choose. So good. And that would be what you call like giving in, allowing them to choose. And then there's like, Gabriel, this is a chance. This is an opportunity where unfortunately we have something we do as a family, but you know, maybe we can, maybe we can do this tomorrow in a week. That type of thing. That's right. That's cool. Instead of authoritarian, do it because I said so. So it's, it's a much healthier position and they learn flexibility. And with your persistent child, you want to be able to say, Hey, you know, when you wanted to ride a two-wheeler and we took out the training wheels, you fell a whole bunch of times, you never gave up, and you rode your bike home. That's amazing. Like, really specific, sincere feedback about the positive side of the trait. So that even if that's even if they're low. So if, if they're a low persistence. Um, that, yeah. So does that look like... You know, sweetie, I know that um, you really enjoy doing this, and I know it was difficult at the beginning. I'm just really proud of you for, but like, I don't want to push me. I'm really proud of you for sticking with it, or I'm really proud of you for doing it um, until you didn't like it anymore. <laughs> so with you see my struggle? Well, you'll get it in a minute too when we do the next trait. With low persistence, um, we want to really help children be more assertive. So how we do that is, you know, through simple acts of giving choices asking their ideas about things. And, and sometimes if they're really struggling and they, they, they have a hard time following through, sometimes if it's happening or showing up at school or something like that, we may want to dig a little deeper to see, is there something else that might be going on here? But generally they can be very agreeable and easygoing and, and you just want to make sure they have a voice and don't get drowned out by their sibling if their sibling yes. has to be more persistent. Yes. Yep, exactly. Darwinism at its best. Okay. Great number four. (laughs) So the next trait is approach to new people and or places and or things. And we go high if a child has a more cautious approach. So my son was about an eight. Um, This is someone who can be excited about going to the new swimming lesson or the new school or having a friend over. And then when they get there, they buy. And they have this cautiousness where they can actually experience more anxiety, too, because, you know, it, it just feels like so much for them to take on. And it's, it's just like you were saying earlier there, Caitlin, uh, that we've got to be able to say, you know, remember last time you started a new class, it took a few lessons before you felt comfortable. And when you felt comfortable, you joined in. So we want to make sure we're not labeling this child shy because shy is a feeling that you have with something new. And when kids are learning something new, if they're cautious, we want to help them work through those feelings of anxiety and uncertainty and just really normalize it so that we're giving them that gentle push forward. What we don't want to do is say, okay, this is scaring you too much. Well, we don't have to go. We don't want to do that because that creates a cycle of anxiety. 
teaches them not to try new things. Yeah. Things are not safe. So do I understand correctly the approach um, rating is not necessarily how they um, do once they get to a new place. It's the aversion or excitement about going or it's once they get there, they feel excited, then they're no longer excited. Um, it, it's kind of both. It's, it's, you know, they can be excited about doing this thing, but it's this negative kind of feeling that they get. And it, it could be, it could be people and or places and yes. or new toys. Like Christmas and birthdays were horrible for us because my son, anything new, he would have this huge meltdown because he wasn't familiar with this thing, you know, or when they go to a place, they hold back um, mm -hmm. until they feel comfortable. So, for example, my granddaughter, uh, she is, has a more cautious approach, and I learned early not to charge into her space to say to people, just come in and mingle for a bit so she's not feeling like she's got this direct attention. That gets yes. her to look at you, take you in, and then approach you. You see that with kids all the time, birthday parties, different things, especially young kids, because they're like, what? is all this like we're, i'm not used to this much stimulus is it possible to be like for example like you said people or places or things but i'm i'm assuming it doesn't mean all or none like my son is great with new people want like in, in small levels and he's also great with new things and he just started his like two-year-old soccer team and the first day he was like my stomach hurts right because he feels that and then we tried again and by the third fourth practice he's like boom he's gone um but it's like not, it doesn't mean they necessarily have a high or approach for everything. It can be, it can be certain things. Exactly. Got it. Okay, cool. And the other end of the trait, I mean, I, I don't talk as much about some of the other ends, but that's a child who has a very fast approach and they run to new experiences, which can be really tough when they're young because you're trying to keep them safe and they're just charging into some yeah. new event. <laughs> and uh, it can be hard for them, especially at ages five or six, to respect other people's spatial bubbles. <laughs> That's they awesome. But they can, you know, be very extroverted. And as they get older, one friend leaves and they want another friend to come over type thing. Now, yep. the next trait is really hard to identify, but wow, is it ever interesting. And it's adaptability. And so someone who's not adaptable is someone who likes their routine. They like to know what to expect. Um, they don't love surprises. I mean, they can be fine traveling Europe, but when they're in their home environment, they really like that certainty. I am not adaptable. If I think we're going for a walk with our dogs to Mount Dogsay, which you don't know where that is probably, but and then suddenly we're going to a different park, I'm like, what? You know, and my husband calls this negative Nelly. It takes me 20 minutes to get used to these kind of surprises. I like to have my routine. Now, for kids, this plays out in a really interesting way because they can go to school and they create a rule book for themselves around how they're supposed to behave. It's their rule book, not yours. Okay. And they can have this tremendous sense of fairness and justice and be really, really well behaved at school. But when they come home, all these injustices have stockpiled in the psychological throat and they yep. have these explosions and parents are like, what is going on? So this is a kid who likes things to be fair and people have to follow this child's rule book. <laughs> and it's, they struggle more with same age peers than older ones or younger ones. Because the rules should be the same. If you're eight, you should be doing what I'm doing because I'm eight. So it's kind of sneaky. And, and sometimes the trouble areas like transition times can be really tough for the non-adaptable child and the cautious child because cautious kids often don't do well leaving an activity. So that's where you yep. can get those really big transition issues. And some of the tips there, if I remember reading from the, you know, the parenting ages correctly are, hey, Gabriel, we're, we're, we're going to be leaving in five minutes. You have five more minutes to play. So, you, you know, like those type of things, yeah. does that help with the transition? Like those, totally. some of the tools? Okay. But what we have to watch out for is as kids get older, we're not also playing by their rule book because they need to learn with the givens of life, you know, like. Not everything will be fair. I mean, life's great, but it's not always fair. People will not always be loving, loyal, and kind. Things don't always go according to plan. 
everything changes and ends. And sometimes you'll feel upset about things. Like these are life's givens. And yep. so we have to help this particular child with their narrative so they don't get so kind of focused on how things should be. We want to help them become more flexible and resilient, really. In all of these cases, right, like you definitely don't, you want to respect and see your child fully where they are, but you also want to give them the tools to understand and be okay and be happy in a world where not everyone's going to operate on the same level as they are, right? That's the basic gist of this. Yeah. So awesome. I've never yeah. seen it organized in this way before. And yeah. like, I can tell you, this is incredibly helpful. I, I've like, I'm thinking of like, even my relationship with my husband as we walk through this and the different things and seemingly like, um, seemingly things that could make, could derail a family outing, right. Are just matters of individual preference and the nine traits within each people. So it's, it's so cool. Well, you know, when I first went through this material and my kids were probably four and two, um, we, we went to a park and my son fell and he just had this massive reaction. I, I swear birds were flying out of the trees for miles because he just couldn't handle things not going according to plan. And he had this massive reaction because he's also very intense. So we'll talk about that in a minute. And yet, Later, when my daughter fell and got a real genuine owie, like I was worried, she kind of went, oh, well, got over it and kept playing. And, and I thought, before I would have looked at my son and I would have thought, what a killjoy. You know, like, what, is it boiled here? Or like, what's going on? Oh. Now I look at it, or that day I was able to give myself self-counsel. Yes. So I could respond more lovingly and be more supportive. What you just hit the nail on the head is it triggers you as the parent. And then you have a moment where you either go into reptilian brain reaction mode, right? Like, oh, I spoiled my kid. I'm doing something wrong. Therefore, I must react. Classic. Or yeah. you can say, okay. Like, I was literally talking to my husband about this. Like, my son doesn't like to go to school. Once he gets there, so he's low on the approach. Um, when, when he gets there, he's fun. But the anxiety of leaving his routine, his life, his family, like you have, this has been amazing for me. I've learned so much, but it, it stresses him out. And we inherently as parents are like, what are we doing wrong? Why? And then I'm like, you know what? This is just who he is. How about instead we just give him some tools to help him feel more comfortable? And it's not, not a reflection on us. We're not doing anything wrong. So that that's huge because I think if you jump into it and react, well, now you're doing double damage. Double damage and anxiety is the fear of what's about to come. That's why when they're actually there, the anxiety has gone. And if parents are really struggling with this, I always suggest just drop your child off for shorter periods because what makes it better is they see you do come back and get them. And then before you know it, they're fine. Wow, this is amazing. I love this. <laughs> so the next trait is intensity. So someone who's a five is just, you know, they can be intense if they're really passionate about something. If someone, if you work your way down toward a one, would be a mild reactor. Someone who's harder to read. Um, they make great kindergarten teachers, you know, because they're so mild-mannered. Um, they can be kind of challenging because you just don't always know how they're feeling about things. So yes. that's kind of tricky. But what I focus on more is if you work your way toward a ten, Someone who's intense can be quite loud and, oh, I love ice cream. I hate broccoli. This is the child where you say, could you make super quiet inside noises? And they can pull it off for like 20 seconds. They can also be knee-jerk reactors. So they can be real blurters and say something like, oh, you butthead or I hate you, which kids will say because they have problems with their feelings. They, they just talk like that, especially for you. But, um, and so I think, I think it's creeping younger, man. Mine just turned three and it's like this light bulb went off and everything's like, okay, bro. I'm like, what? <laughs> Where's the bro face already? <laughs> it's so crazy. Oh. Yeah. Um, so if we've got an intense child, we've got to watch that we don't match their intensity. Mm -hmm. well, quit yelling at me and eat your broccoli. Damn it. <laughs> Um, but we've also got to be able to give them a second chance to reword what they're saying because, 
you know, their nervous system just works so that they will work these things out or they will have these impulsive, strong reactions. And, um, wow. you know, so Im immaturity plus temperament means we've got to look at how high we hold the bar of expectation for our child. We've got to accept their limitations, hold the bar at just the right level so they're not being punished for this stuff. Punish kids for dysregulation makes no sense at all. We'll talk yes, about I love that you said that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and acceptance is not the same as approving. You can say, you know what, it's not okay to call me a butthead. So I'm not approving of it, but I'm not moving into punishment because I accept, hey, we've got some skills we need to develop and you're still young. Oh, well. So that's awesome. Wow. Yeah. Next trait is sensory sensitivity. And so this is someone who, if you work your way up toward a higher number, which I only really talk about in this particular trait, someone who could be sensitive to all five senses, smell, sight, sound, you know, touch, taste, people with picky eaters. Um, my granddaughter, kids will show you their sensitivities. You know, she goes like this quite a bit. If I turn on a blender, it will just send her into like, and I've made that mistake a couple of times, you know. And so we're watching their sensitivities. A physically sensitive child can feel the label on the back of their T-shirt like it's a piercing dagger if they're intense. Yeah. And so what we say about this is you just want to be able to acknowledge what they're sensitive to. If it's touch, um, they do want to wear more comfortable clothes. And if they're not adaptable, they don't like seasonal changes in clothing. <laughs> But they're also sensuous. So I, I'm a very uh, sensitive person. I, I like the lights to be low. I like comfortable clothing. And I refuel by making my environment soft and easy. It's kind of frustrating, I think, for my partner because before we sit down for dinner, the dimmer switches have got to be at the right place. And we can refuel with pleasant sounds and smells. So there's a sensuality that goes with this. We just have to take it seriously. Yeah, I, I, that's what I gathered or just gleaned from what you said is if you understand where their sensitivities lie, then you can help create a mood for them that will be replenishing. Like with our 15-year-old, like this girl takes on a lot. So the other day, like I set a mood for her. Right? We put the lights down, put candles on, got a thing going for her in the shower, like warm the towel. Like just something to help her like decompress. And I think at that age, they don't necessarily know how to do it for themselves. So to show them, here are some really healthy ways to do it. I, I didn't know what I was doing. I was trying to be nice. But now in, in this context, I have a framework. <laughs> That's what I was doing. <laughs> the thing is as parents, we're, when we're attuned to our children, we tend to intuitively support them, like the five-minute warning that you talked about you know, and that kind of thing. But just if we could for just a second look at dysregulation. Uh, yesterday morning was my nanny day. So Arlo, my two-year-old granddaughter, came over and they had a really rough morning. Her eyes were all red. My daughter's approaching her third trimester of her second pregnancy. And so they just had a tough morning. And um, my daughter said, Mom, maybe you just go to the mall and, and let her play in the cars. And I'm like, we'll figure it out. And I thought, I am not taking a dysregulated toddler to the mall where there's these bright lights and things that don't work. And we're going in the backyard. We went in my backyard and we grabbed some empty buckets and we went searching for pine cones. They were everywhere, but children have centered thinking so they can only kind of see what's in front of them. And she'd find one buried in the grass and she said, Nana. And after 200 pine cones, she was still Nana. And then we sat in a chair and we just let the sun hit us. And then she's just learning how to breathe. So I said, let's do some breathing. And it's the first time I've seen her be able to do it. But then she started to become regulated. And then she started to eat food, which she couldn't do when she was dysregulated. And so I just saw her become more resourced within her own body. And I think we have to pay so much attention to our children and our dysregulation. And so when our kids become dysregulated, we sometimes just have to stop talking. Because the more we talk and, yeah. and try to teach them a lesson or set a limit, the higher up anxiety, anger mountain they go. And then they blow. They get into the vortex where they're lost. 
And when kids go into the vortex, especially if you start looking at these traits, they're persistent, they're intense, they're sensitive, not adaptable. There's nothing you can do other than stand by them and say, I love you. I see you're struggling. I'm right here for you. I can see you're overwhelmed. I'm not. I'm okay. I've got the backbone to be with you. So that they are not afraid of their own temperament and feelings. That's beautiful. That's yeah. beautiful because if you go to dysregulation too, in the earnest help of supporting them, now you're both now you're both lost, and yeah. now there's no tether. Yeah, that's a great point. Quick shout out here to grandparents. You are amazing. I grant like grandparents, aunts, people who come in. It really does take a village. And I mean, my mom and my dad are like the reason we moved down here. And I can see that in our own home. Like we're in our routine and we're trying to get ready in the morning. When she walks in, like we try and be mindful, but you know, there are mornings where there's meetings happening, the dog's barking. It's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a family of five, like, you know, pick your, pick your poison. It's going on. Um, and, and it's just like, grandma just walks in and she's flowing. She scoops up Gabriel. I love you. And it's just like, it's just, I don't know. It's, you know, you, you've gone through it. You have like the badge of honor. I just wanted to tell you a huge appreciation uh, even if your daughter is in a place where she doesn't always see it, because I know I've been, I'm in that place. Like we love you. Grandparents are the best. You're doing God's work. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, I know because I had that with my mom. She was a living Mrs. Doubtfire, except she really was a female. And she would, <laughs> my house would be clean and my kids were happy and she actually juggled and, and she gave me quality of life and my kids adored her. Yeah. It's amazing. We are so blessed to, to have that yeah, even absolutely. now. Yeah. That's awesome. Very cool. Very cool story. I'm, uh, and and to bring back to what you said, you realized that your granddaughter needed, you realized her sensitivity level and she needed to not be in a highly stimulated environment. She needed to be in a very, not I would call outdoors low stimulation, but just relax, yeah. let her focus on one thing, let her regulate herself versus trying to force her into this box. Well, that was brilliant. There's something about being outside because everywhere yes. she can run. And if she falls, she's on grass. She can dig up the dirt. You know, it's just such a beautiful thing. And it, it, yeah, I think there's a lot to it. Yeah. I guess we've got two traits left. Unfortunately, I don't have to go on too long with these next two traits, but um, the eighth one is body regularity. And if you work your way up toward a 10, someone who is very regular with, you know, their, their need for sleep and food, this is someone where the antecedents to challenging behavior will be hunger and fatigue, period. This is a child or adult who gets the hangry going on, which can be why dinner time's so hard, because now you've got two hangry people or transitions, not eat, all that stuff. And so, you know, antecedent management means you want to identify the challenges or the triggers to challenging behavior and manage that. Antecedent management is the most important part of discipline. And maybe I get to come on again and talk about that another time. Amazing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, whereas someone who's not as regular, you work your way down to a one, is someone who can handle a lack of sleep. And, and so my daughter could handle that. She could party all night and then get up and go to work on Saturday morning. Whereas if my son did that, he would be physically ill. You know? Um, and then finally mood. And they were able to see that obviously mood is affected by our life experiences, but they were able to see that some babies just came into the world. They weren't just physically sensitive, you know, and they had a more positive mood and they would have a more positive narrative. So I guess you'd work your way down to a one, just more positive mood. And for other children, so my daughter was the, the child who always made me laugh and, you know, for my son, he, he saw the glass half empty, more serious, more sensitive, and um, yeah, just a slightly more serious mood, even though he was hilarious and could be a ton of fun. Wow. Just really having to watch, you know, kind of his own self-talk. So I was kind of a cognitive coach to him as he was growing up to really help him see other sides of the story not when I'm supposed to be listening, but later I'd say, hey, can I just hold up a different version of the story that we were into this morning? I wonder if your teacher was just really busy and just couldn't see you put your hand up. Is there any chance of that? Mm -hmm. So, wow. yeah, we did it. We went through the nitrates. It's amazing. Wow. I can, I mean, that's crazy. I, I'm 
going to post your course down below, like where people can find it on Udemy, because I think like I'm taking this, this, this is like life-changing stuff right here. This is awesome. Thank you. Well, I recommend people go on my website, uh, lifeseminars.com. I will and put that in the description. Yeah, that's the place to go because the courses are way more affordable in there. Oh, okay. Fair enough. <laughs> this is amazing. I'm immediately after this podcast going to go find my husband and give him a kiss because I've just realized how uh, challenging I must be to live with because I'm so many of these. <laughs> if it makes you feel better, yesterday I just figured out what a perfectionist I am with my husband. And I'm 64, so. <laughs> it's a journey. <laughs> so it keeps you young, right? That's amazing. <laughs> So one, one other topic I would love your expertise on is you touched on it a little bit ago with, cause I think it's not only important at toddler level, but like all the way to my kids going to college, um, the, a discipline, um, like I think you called it, it wasn't, it wasn't rewarding the behavior punishment, the, the whole punishment thing. Um, can you, can you just, I know it's a huge topic, but any like tips or just watch outs there would be incredible. Well, you know, the thing that I mentioned about how high we hold the bar and the expectation we have of kids, if if we're punishing children because of immaturity and temperament, we're causing harm. Mm -hmm. um, there is a place for logical consequences, but by the time people finish both my courses, I'm hoping they're hardly using them at all. Wow. And so a logical consequence is reasonable, planned ahead, usually has to do with safety, or maybe, you know, something that's so long-term, you know, the natural consequences aren't obvious. So sometimes we just need a follow-through. Like when my daughter was four, she left the yard and went down the street to a friend's. You know, my words weren't enough to say I was so scared I didn't know where you were. I needed to add, and tomorrow we're going to have some inside time. And, you know, and does it work to teach children to be kind? Maybe not, but maybe they remember. But yeah. where we want to focus is antecedents. So if an antecedent is very powerful, like a parent going back to work, so it could be an event, if it's a temperament antecedent, um, if it's a time of day or hunger, fatigue, all of those things, yes, right? If the antecedent is powerful and we're still using punishment or consequences, again, we're causing harm because we're not wow. getting to the root of the matter. And when it comes to like letting go of kid issues, which are areas where children have responsibility, let them experience some natural consequences that aren't devastating. And people say, well, what do I do? Set my kid up to have some sort of, no, it's that when they make a mistake, they forget their lunch, they don't study for a test, don't reprimand and punish, support. And don't take it over with teaching a lesson. Say, wow, this is really tough. Just give them some empathy Wow. Because we stand in front of our children's responsibility when we take over their natural learning of life. So, and I know we're doing it to try and protect, but there's an element, or at least I can feel like there's could be an element of ego in there. We're not the type of family who procrastinates. We're not the type of family who fails our test. Well, okay, you aren't, but you gotta let them decide who they want to be too, or they'll never be able to grow. I, I could just, I could feel that in, yes. you know, I have a 15 year old too. Right. So there's been that type of thing. Wow. Yeah. That, that I can see parents who are very well-intentioned me, including doing this, right. Like not even, not even intentionally, just by just not being present to, to what's happening. Well, in obedience, the obedience model um, deprives children of self-agency and self-esteem. It, it just doesn't produce healthy yeah. adults. So yeah. So wow. much more we could say. You are incredible. Um, well, what I think we're going to do is I'm going to give our audience an opportunity to go through this material and um, check you out. And then maybe we'll have you back on with some more questions. Maybe I haven't done this yet, but I'll structure like a Q&A where they can write in and we can answer some of the questions they have. But I, I find this, this was invaluable. This was awesome. I, I keep learning new stuff all the time. And so again, I'm so grateful when I discovered Allison Miller, I just thought, wow, I just found the mothership of parenting because we cover so much material. and uh, Amazing. Yeah, lots of fun. So I usually end our podcast by saying, give us one thing you could do, we could start doing today to like um, improve our relationships or our lives. But I feel like you just gave us 
a ton. Um, so I, I think this is incredible. I will ask where people can find you, how they can get involved. I, you said your website, right? So um, what are the projects you're working on? And if people are moved by this work, which I can imagine, I don't see how they wouldn't be, um, what's the best way that they consume or interact with you? And if they go to our website, so life actually stands for living in families effectively. Go to lifeseminars.com and just work your way through some of the course material. I'm continuing to build it. I've been really excited about the couples course because quite often people come to see me and they're hyper-focused on the negative behavior of a child when in fact what the child is acting out is the couple conflict. Because modeling, wow. Yeah, we are a system. So... I really decided, no, I, I want to support adult relationships just as much as the parenting stuff. So I'm still building the audio content. We've got our books on there. And what I'd like to offer your listeners is that Cut It Out book. So if any of your listeners write back to you, please send them the PDF of my Cut It Out articles because there's so much stuff in there. So that would be awesome. That's that's so generous of you, Allison. That's amazing. I really appreciate it. You are honestly doing such incredible work and it's so motivating. Uh, this whole journey has led me to really, it's a really a mirror. Parenting is such a beautiful and very, very brutal. Very, It's like a the mirror that really, really gets in there. And you're like, oh, I didn't want to see my face that much. <laughs> if you just have dogs, I'm sorry. You're not going to learn as much about yourself as you will in your kids. Oh, oh, I don't know what I do without my dog. That that the they have a sweet little golden doodle, and he's just like, ah. <laughs> they don't. I don't think they have nine attributes. They have like two: peanut butter and like walk. <laughs> and when you have a teenager, you need a dog so someone's happy to see you when you get home. <laughs> Exactly. It's amazing. Oh, well, you are just so, um, what a breath of fresh air. And thank you for spending your morning with us. You were incredible. Um, I'm definitely going to keep you in the loop and shoot you some of the feedback that we get from this because um, I know you're in BC, but I can tell you from, from the American perspective, like this was amazing. And I'm so excited for our audience to just be introduced to you and your amazing work. So thank you so much. Great to meet Parents, you. Such a good, great to meet you. Parents, as always, thank you guys for being here. Um, we love you. And until the next perfect time, stay beautiful and stay inspired.